Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. Joining me here today is Jason Foster, CEO of Ori Biotech and a health tech angel who sits on the board of many startups. So today we're going to be discussing how to be a CEO. So Jason, can you start by uh, talking a little bit about your journey and how you arrived at being CEO at Ori Biotech? Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, when you posed the question to me, how to be a CEO, I thought maybe you should probably ask someone else because I'm still learning every day as well. But um, I was, uh, I did join Ori specifically into that role with the two scientific founders, um, which is not a totally uh, unusual story in the health tech space. I think the, the characteristics that make you a great uh, innovator, entrepreneur, scientist, biochemist, whatever it is, biologist, aren't always the same skills that, that make a successful CEO. And, and so I give Farland, the, the founder of Ori, quite a lot of credit mm. in really recognizing where his strengths were, where his passions were, the kinds of things that needed to be done in the business that potentially I could add value to. Um, and so, you know, I did join the business after we successfully raised the seed round together. Uh, so I was working, just to give you a bit of background, I've, I have 25-ish years of healthcare experience building businesses in the space. I helped build a specialty pharmaceutical business uh, from 2006 to 2016. So over a kind of 10 and a half year journey, we went from five people to 1,100 people over that time. Uh, and from, we expanded into 37 countries. So as you can tell by my funny accent, I'm an American, mm -hmm. uh, but I live in London, have been here for 13 years, came over with that business to start the European operation. and. Um, so have a few, one or two failed startup experiences, one or two relatively successful ones. Uh, and I think those kinds of experiences are, are super helpful when you come into a role like the one I have at Ori. Um, and because I was the second or third employee at the company, um, we were starting with a clean slate. And actually one of my directors at Ori is a lady called Annalisa Jenkins. And I hope she doesn't mind me saying this if she's watching, but uh, I just, they're like, well, tell, tell me about her. I'm like, she's a badass. I don't know how else to describe it. She was a CEO of her own company. She's been a public and private company chairperson. She sits on the board of Genomics England. She advises the FDA. Like, she's just one of these people who has an incredible portfolio. And she said to me that the great thing about kind of starting your own business mm -hmm. or, or joining a business quite early is you get to build the business that you always wanted to work for. And I found that to be so true. And, and I think it relates to like, how do you be a CEO? Yeah is there has to be a massive focus on the people. I think what you don't really realize usually as a new CEO or someone who's growing a business, you realize that people are important, but you don't realize that they're the most important thing. <laughs> and it's recruitment, it's talent, yeah. it's culture. You know, the, the, the phrase culture eats strategy for breakfast. Like the culture of the business is about the most important thing you can invest your time in. I know we're gonna talk about do's and don'ts later, so I'll maybe save <laughs> a deeper dive into that. But, you know, spending a lot of time on what do you want this company to be? What does it believe in? What, what's the purpose that you want people to understand that you're all about? Well, you know, when they join you, when they partner with you, uh, when they work with you as a vendor or as, a, as another type mm -hmm. of partner, you want everyone in the, in the value chain, uh, at least in the case of Ori, to understand that our mission is to enable widespread patient access to life-saving cell and gene therapies. That's why we get out of bed in the morning. And so things like that where you know, you think being a CEO is about kind of, you know, running meetings and 
you know, setting up structures and, you know, talking, maybe doing interviews or whatever the things are that, yeah. of course, you do those things as well. But the most important things are about kind of business building and culture building and hiring and empowering people to be their best selves at work and building psychological safety and all those things that maybe they're a little bit fuzzier than, you know, what you learn. I went to Columbia Business School where there's a lot of hard edge finance people and you're sort of learning how to be a CEO or learning how to be a manager. They don't teach a lot of these things there. Yeah. Um, and those are the things that I've found to be the most impactful and the most important, you know, throughout this journey. So do you think you kind of got your base understanding of how to be a CEO from Columbia Business School or was it more just trial and error? Yeah, um, a little bit of both. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the I was involved in the kind of student leadership at Columbia and saw that side of the world and being in an environment where you have, you know, really top tier talented individuals and understanding how to operate in that environment. You know, I always joke that we're all in sales. Right. So even if, yeah. you're not, if you even know if you don't have a sales role, you know, I'm busy selling ideas or selling the business to investors or, you know, selling the concept and the ambition of the company mm -hmm. and being able to speak and influence in a, in a compelling way, being able to tell the story of the company or of your ambition as a company or yourself. These are all incredibly important skill sets to have as a CEO or as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as you know. Um, and they don't really teach those things in business school. Those are things you kind of have to pick up along the way. So I definitely got a foundation of, you know, how to read a balance sheet and how to build a, yeah. you know, do an NPV and, you know, how to value companies and some of these things that our investors use to look at us uh, during mm. investor rounds and understanding what investors care about. But those kind of functional things, that foundational uh, skill set was there. Uh, and then I've kind of layered on top of that through experience. Some of these other more EQ, less IQ kind of focused things, which I think are equally, if not more important. And um, what was your kind of work experience background before you kind of came into doing startups? So I, um, I've been in healthcare for what seems like mm. a very long time, 25 years or so. Yeah. Uh, whenever I say I've done something for 25 years, it makes me sound super old, which is probably the case. But anyway, that's uh, it's kind of jarring. Um, but I, when I, I came out of undergrad, I went to Washington D.C. and mm -hmm. I worked in healthcare policy, um, and working on the kind of policy side of healthcare made me realize that actually the government and regulators are often reactive, not proactive, mm. and the real change and the real progress is being driven by the private sector. And so I sort of switched gears from maybe a policy-related career into what I thought, okay, well, I want to join the private sector if that's where the action is. And yeah. so that's what led me to Columbia for business school um, and then went to work for Merck, the big pharma company after mm. business school, um, learning, it was actually in a managed care business that they own called Medco, uh, which is part of Cigna now, um, and learning kind of managed care and how payers work in the U.S. and it's all incredibly complicated and even the people who work in it don't really understand how it works. Um, and then became a consultant for a bit, also consulting to pharma companies on their market access or you know uh, yeah. strategies. And then met uh, met the team that was building the business that I was telling you about, which was at the time part of Reckitt Benkiza, the big household goods company, but it was yeah. a startup within a major conglomerate. Um, so we kind of had the benefits of a big, deep-pocketed parent, but there was just a couple of us in a room, like trying to figure out what to do, completely separate from all the structure and the politics and the you know sort of other parts, the culture of that organization. So um, those skills and building that business from very few to many. You know, we mm. went from basically zero to a billion dollars in revenue. We went from a few people to 1,100. 
Uh, and we did a, did a listing on the LSE in 2014, about eight, eight-ish years in. And so going through the yeah. IPO process was super interesting. Yeah. Um, so you kind of bring all of those experiences, kind of more corporate experiences. But I was actually reading an article this morning from Harvard Business Review, which says, mm-hmm. like, if I want to become a CEO, how do I do it? Which I thought was super interesting, kind of leading, reading it from the perspective where I sit. And they say things like, you know, don't be afraid to take a lateral move or, a, or a, yeah. what appears to be a downgrade to get experience. Like if you're going to start a new division inside a big company or you're going to take a problem, you know, a problem child, mm. a product and take that over and put your, you know, take the risk to do that. Those are the kinds of experience that build kind of CEO capabilities and metal. And, and so when mm. I look back now, having read that this morning, actually, and I look back, I'm like, oh, actually, that move that I made from here to there. That kind of makes sense. Um, you know, I wanted to, to something that I could have a bigger impact over and I could have control of and shape. And some of those experiences you can find in big companies. Um, and so what I learned kind of in retrospect is I was trying to find the, the dynamism, the impact yeah. of a startup, but it was in a big company. And then I realized actually when I grew a startup to a big company that I really wasn't a big company guy. <laughs> yeah. So when yeah. uh, after that 10 year journey, we listed the company um, and, you know, at that time we're obviously, we're a FTSE 250 company, we're, mm. you know, multinational and it just wasn't, it wasn't right for me anymore. And so I said, well, let me get back to my roots and go see if I can find other interesting companies yeah. doing interesting things. And, and that's really when I jumped in with both feet into the innovation ecosystem here in London, particularly in, in healthcare and health tech. So that's sort of, um, how you would go about, um, becoming a CEO, mm-hmm. what are what are the number one things to do as a CEO? And do you have some examples of that? Sure, sure. Um, I've always been a, kind of in sales and marketing roles, commercial roles, and I think that kind of externally facing kind of customer focus is really important. Really understanding in, intuitively the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, we were going to talk do's and don'ts, so we're in the do's section, so mm-hmm. I'll stay focused on those. But I see a lot of founders not doing that, you know, really yeah. focused on technology mm. because they're technical founders, they're clinical founders, um, and being very, very focused on technology. No one really cares. No one really cares about your technology. Investors don't care. Customers yeah. don't care. What they care about is, are you solving a real problem? Is the solution big enough, you know, impactful enough that someone's willing to pay for it, that you can create yeah. a business model that works? Um, and so spending your time as a CEO really focused internally on the right things. So culture we talked about, hiring the right people, empowering them, incentivizing them properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then not, and also spending a lot of time externally focused, learning. What is your, what, you know, you and I were just talking, like I'm not actively fundraising, but I'm about eight or nine months away from my next round. Yeah. And so I'm spending a lot of time with the next stage of investors, you know, learning about what do they care about? What are their, how do they make the judgment calls on whether to invest in or not? Yeah. What kind of milestones does the company need to be able to present? What kind of data for them to say, yeah, you know, this is a good risk to take uh, and building that network out well in advance before you need it. You know, I think mm-hmm. as a CEO, understanding, you know, what motivates your board and your investors, what motivates your customers, what motivates your team, uh, what motivates yourself, you know, um, ultimately, why are you doing this? Yeah. And focusing on some of those things, uh, I think, is probably not given enough um, credit, enough impetus as a CEO. Mm. A lot of times you focus on technology because you're the technologist and you love the technology and that's what you're good at. And so you go really deep on that. But some of these other things get neglected. Uh, and so you either need to decide, OK, like Farland did, 
he wanted, he's our chief scientific officer. He's like, I want to really focus on product, on science, mm. on technical development and building that team out and having an impact on the business that way. And he'll, I always say he's the innovation engine of the company. So he's going to have, he has our next 10 products mapped out on all the innovation that we can bring to the market. That's his skill set. And if you are a founder, CEO, who mm. loves the technical side, um, it's important to kind of realize what you're good at and what you love. And potentially, if you're not good at some of those things the CEO needs to do, to bring in someone who does to love, love doing those things. Because if you don't, your investors will. Your investors will move you into a role that's more appropriate for you and your skill set, and they'll mm -hmm. bring in someone who has those skills. Or potentially, unfortunately for some, they get moved out of the company if they can't make that transition. So I think it's super important to really be reflective about what you're good at, what you love doing, yeah. bring in the right people to surround yourself with, um, and empower those people to be successful. And, you know, as a CEO, you do lots of different things. You wear lots of different hats every day. Um, one of the things that I spend a lot of time on besides just, you know, talent is how do we align the incentives of the business with the incentives of the, the talent within the business? So, mm -hmm. you know, we, one of the things we've done at Ori, which I would recommend to anyone listening is we've really aligned around ownership. So I want people to act like owners of the business, not mm -hmm. employees of the business. And so from top to bottom, everyone has equity in the business. They have option mm. grants. And it's not that unusual in the U.S. It's a little bit more unusual in yeah. Europe for everyone in the company to have, have options. Uh, and we've also thought very hard about incentive schemes. So mm -hmm. I use the scheme because that's what Brits say. It's gonna, a scheme in the U.S. is something nefarious. <laughs> but a scheme here, you know, as you know, yeah. just needs a program or you know, incentive po policies. And very, mm -hmm. almost every company I've ever worked for in my life, actually every single one, has a KPI-driven bonus scheme, right? So at the end of the year, mm. you get 15 or 20 or 25% of your salary based on if you hit these three or four or five KPIs. Yeah. And there's been a lot of work done by a, a, a guy called Daniel Pink, and he wrote a book about it called Drive, where he looks at the power of those kinds of incentives. And basically, yeah. he studies and says, Carrot and stick incentives actually cause worse performance, not better. Mm. Which is a very interesting finding if you've grown up in business where everywhere has carrot and stick incentives, yeah. right? And the reason that is, is because, I mean, and you might have seen this in, in past lives as well, is that the amount of time you spend trying to decide what are the right KPIs and the incentives that places on employees, right? So I'm, I'm to come up with my own objectives for the year, right? As a human being, I want to hit my targets. I want to, you know, if I'm looking for accolades or I want to please my boss or I want my bonus or whatever, I'm going to set targets that I think are reasonable. Yeah. Now, that might cause me to have the incentive to sandbag my targets. I think I can hit 10, but I'm going to set a target at 8 just in mm. case. Give myself a little bit of a margin. It doesn't in any way incentivize me to shoot for 11, right? Yeah. And so this is the theory behind OKRs, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is sort of, you know, if we don't tie remuneration with targets, we pay people fairly to take kind of money off the table then you get much better performance. They're willing to shoot for 11, and then they might land, still land on eight, but they might also land on nine or 10, and you mm. might get more than you bargained for, more than you're paying for. Um, and it's those kinds of schemes that I think actually have a lot of perverse, put a lot of perverse incentives in the business. So as a CEO, I think a lot about how are our, what incentives are we providing to our team? Are we incentivizing them to be innovative, to think outside the box, to really bring their innovation, their whole self to work? What kind of environment are we creating for them? Yeah. And there is the environment, because if it's very autocratic, it's very top down, potentially people, you mm. know, they get punished or rebuked for not, you know, 
doing things that may be outside the norm, people aren't going to do that. They're not going to put their head up. And so you have to really think about how do I build psychological safety into an organization? How do I incentive people, incentivize people using what Dan Pink suggests motivates people is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm-hmm. So people want to the autonomy to develop their own careers. They want to you know, move their career forward. They don't want someone looking over their shoulder and micromanaging them. Um, is what I'm doing meaningful? You know, does it have purpose? Does it have a, a higher, you know, uh, value than just me earning a paycheck? And so it's these kinds of things I would urge, yeah. urge CEOs. And I spent a lot of time working on these kinds of things, learning about them, thinking about them, and trying to implement them. Because when you try the first time, sometimes it kind of goes half right or maybe it goes horribly wrong. Uh, but you start to see the momentum and you start to see the people you're attracting and you start to feel the energy yeah. in the company and you know you're kind of on the right track. Um, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I wonder if what you're saying applies to larger companies, right? Because if we're um, back to maybe that seed stage mm-hmm. where you have companies that don't have you know product market fit yet mm-hmm. and the focus is you know, let's get to product market fit. I don't know if that is going to be the main focus, right, for, for the CEO. Maybe it should be. I guess what I'm, <laughs> what I'm arguing is maybe it should be. So yeah. you're saying, well, I should focus on product and mm. I should make sure we have the right technology to get the right product to solve the right problem in the market. And well, then- because it's like, yes, we need culture and we need like a great team of people to build out this company. Yeah. But if you don't have a product that anyone wants, ultimately the company doesn't exist. So yeah. I don't know if... I, I think it's not mutually exclusive. Because mm. you know, as a CEO, there's, as, you, as you grow in the yeah. role and as the company changes, your focus shifts. Yeah. So I would argue focus on culture early is important because mm. if you make a bad hire early, yeah. it'll kill the company for sure, especially yeah. a senior hire. So you need to be really, really focused on what you want the company to be, how you want it to be working there, and bring the right talent in. I don't disagree that you also have to be focused on, and I would say rather than the solution, you need to be focused on the problem. You need to make sure you fully understand it. Yeah. You need to make sure you understand your customers' needs, which you talked about, and then only then yeah. can you develop a solution that works. Um, and you have to be, de- be focused on developing that solution. Yeah. As you said, you, know, you can't leave it in the hands of others and or you can't not do it because that ultimately is the lifeblood of the company. Yeah. Um, but I would argue the balance, most early stage CEOs get the balance wrong. Mm. Too focused on product, too focused on tech, not focused enough on customers, not focused enough on team. Yeah. So I guess that's like a natural progression into the what, what are the things that people should definitely not do as CEO? And what are some examples of this that you maybe did in some earlier companies and you were like, oh gosh. <laughs> I mean, I'll give you a great example of that is exactly what we were talking about, which is um, my very first startup was in 2000, so the dot-com bubble. Mm. We, I, was, I joined Off Capitol Hill because it was the sexy thing to do. Everyone was joining a startup, and I thought it was cool, and yeah. you know, I was bored, and so it made sense. Um, and I was the second employee in that company, or third employee, I can't remember, and I was head of everything but the technical side. So there was the founder who did raise the money, there was, the, there was a website, so the guy who was doing the web coding, and then there was me. And so I was doing sales and marketing, I was doing all the other stuff. And what we didn't focus on well enough was, do we have a repeatable and reliable business model? Are someone will, is someone willing to pay for this solution? Mm. We thought, wow, this is a great service. Well, people will love this. And we went, you know, and it was, 
essentially a communication platform for people that were interested in, in politics and sort of like uh, stimulating a dialogue around the issues of the day, if, if you will. Um, and what we quickly realized, you know, the, the, from the time I joined to the time it, it uh, went bust was 10 months. So it was a very quick learning curve. Well, um, it was right in the middle of the dot-com bust as well, which didn't help. Um, but what I realized is that we had a solution. We had a product, but it wasn't a solution that anyone was willing to pay for. It wasn't mm. the problem we were solving wasn't big enough, wasn't important enough for our target customer group yeah. to be willing to pay for it. There were other solutions that they had or they just weren't that interested in solving that problem. And what I see a lot actually with health tech entrepreneurs is, is there's a lot of this. So mm. if you look at maybe the, the value chain, I'll just take something totally separate from you and I do. The value chain in a hospital, for example. People want to sell into hospitals. They want to sell uh, communication platforms. They want to sell e-batch record kind of, or not e-batch record, uh, electronic medical records, pl plugins, the apps that talk to customers, apps that, apps that allow the, the patient to carry their medical records with them. There's all these pieces yeah. that people are innovating around. But at the end of the day, the people who are going to pay for that don't care about those things. Mm. The hospital is not going to pay because the hospital is about, I need to make more money. Like, let's take the NHS out of it for a minute. The hospital's like, I need to make more money. The pharmaceutical company's not going to pay because that doesn't help us sell more, more uh, pharmaceuticals. The insurance company isn't going to pay because it doesn't save them costs. And so I want to say to founders, and the mistake that I made in my very first startup was I didn't know who my target customer was. I didn't really understand their problem. So I was a solution in search of a problem. Mm. Never start with the solution. Always start with the problem. You really have to fundamentally understand the problem that you're going to solve. Yeah. And there's probably lots of ways to try and solve that. Some are technical solutions, some are service-based solutions, some are both. But what I often see in our space in particular is people have a technology. They have an idea because of their background. And they say, I'm going to develop this technology because they're going to want it if I develop it. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's the best technology out there. Yeah. And then routinely that falls flat. I'll give you another one. There's plenty. We can do this all day probably. Um, so one on the product market fit, you know, customer focus side yeah. and one on the people side. So in my very first, let's call it large people management role, I had a team of 40 people. Wow. And I had several layers of management and I managed across many different countries. So 10 different countries, the UK, Ireland, the Nordic countries, and the Baltics. Um, and each of those countries have very, very different cultural yeah. norms. So the Nordics in general are pretty flat, pretty open. UK, less so, you know, communication, open communication can be difficult. Um, and I was going through a process with one of my, my team where I thought I was giving her very, very clear feedback that her performance needed to improve. Mm. And we had this conversation over several months and um, I wasn't seeing the improvement that I wanted and we were having this conversation and ultimately it came time to, we had to sort of separate, you know, yeah. the business and, and this individual. Now, what was the surprising about this whole thing, she was totally blindsided by it. Mm. Even though I thought I had been, we'd been having this conversation for months, communication is both sending and receiving information, right? So I was sending information, she wasn't receiving it. And there, some of it could have been language, some of it could have been culture, some of it could have been norms. Yeah. But I wasn't clear enough. And I didn't maybe put it in writing as much or as clearly as I needed to, so that I was sure that she really understood the gravity of the situation and the feedback. Uh, and so a learning for me from that is never surprise anyone, you know, be very, very clear that both the sending and receiving information is happening because the only time you really get those yeah. 
really emotional reactions to those hard conversations is when you haven't been clear up front, when you haven't been clear about these are my expectations. If those expectations aren't being met, you need to say, my expectations aren't being met. Here are the things that we need to do. And you need to be very, very clear about that and make sure that they understand that yeah. this is a, the type of issue that could eventually cause you know, this kind of outcome. Um, and I was extremely surprised by the fact that she was surprised. <laughs> and um, so that was the first part of the lesson. So being very, very clear mm. about your feedback and your communications, particularly across cultures, but even within cultures. So as an American, I kind of get away with being very, a little bit loud, very opinionated, very direct. Yeah. In the UK, Brits aren't normally culturally like that. It's a little bit more circumspect in the way we communicate here. Uh, and making sure you flex your communication style so that it fits uh, is, is part of that lesson. The second part of the lesson, which is super, which is probably even more interesting, at least it was for me, is that when she left the, our organization and went to another organization, mm. she was a superstar. Interesting. So every time I have had those hard conversations subsequent to that, and I'm 100% convinced this is the case, is that if you as a manager or as a leader, as a CEO, mm. are feeling that it's not working, the individual also feels that. They will know. Yeah. They know that they're not you know, a star. They're not knocking the ball out of the park. They're not achieving the level mm. that they would like to be achieving. And sometimes it's just the wrong fit. It's that person yeah. that is in the wrong role. And maybe they need to be in a different role within the same organization. Or maybe if you release them from this situation, which they're not optimal in, yeah. they know it, we know it, they can go on to do great things and they can be the, a top performer in another organization in another role. Because I think as managers and as CEOs, we think, oh no, you know, I have to have this hard conversation. Yeah. You sort of dread having it. And certainly if it's going to lead to someone leaving the organization, you're like, oh, that's it's going to be terrible. But ultimately, I think actually you're doing both them and the organization a favor. And we shouldn't be afraid. Because oftentimes what happens is because we were afraid and it's kind of a painful conversation, we prolong it. We sort yeah. of like, we'll give them another shot. We'll put them on a performance improvement plan. We'll, we'll give them a few months and see if they turn around. We've given them some feedback. Very, very rarely, if ever, do people fundamentally change their mm. performance. So know that it's the right decision. Know that yeah. it's the right decision, not only for yourself, for your organization, but for the individual. And make the decision quickly and make it early. As soon as you have an indication it's not working, make the decision early. Because you're only doing yourself and, the, and that individual a disservice if you prolong that that kind of period of time where it's kind of indecisive. Yeah, and I think as like having started the company when I was 21 and being mm -hmm. quite a young manager, I found it very awkward and difficult and challenging to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that um, awkwardness, it led to that ambiguity. So mm -hmm. how did you um, get over that initial hurdle? Yeah, I mean, I think it really was just this kind of realization of, mm. and especially if, you know, in your situation, there's probably people that are older and more experienced yeah. than you and that you're managing. And less mm. so now because I'm 48, but before <laughs> this is quite common. Yeah. Um, and I think you just have to know that this you're doing the right thing. You have to have the confidence that, mm. you know, ultimately it's going to work out for the best, both for them and for you and being clear and upfront and open. And it goes back to the culture point is, yeah. This individual and the individuals in, at Ori know that I'm not there to hurt their feelings. I'm not there to make them look yeah. bad. I'm trying to coach and help and make them the best they can be. And that's at Ori or that's after Ori. Um, you know, I, I always say that as organizations, we are leasers of talent. 
right? You're not purchasing talent. No one has, is mm. indentured to work for your organization, right? They have to choose and want to do that. Yeah. And we have to make it an enjoyable, fun learning environment where people mm. are passionate about what you do because we're, we're on loan. They're on loan to us, right? So um, we have the ability to develop a culture that keeps people engaged and keeps people excited and keeps them wanting to work there. Uh, and part of that is, especially if you're thinking about, you know, recruiting and, and retaining the best talent, everyone else in the organization also knows that that's not working. Mm. So when they look to the left and they look to the right, they want to see, I've got A-star players on both sides yeah. of me. We're running fast. We're achieving great things. And if someone's not quite pulling their weight or not quite adding as much value, yeah, everybody knows. Everybody can see it. It might not be spoken. It might not be something you hear, but everybody can see it. And when you make the decision, it's amazing how quickly the switch flips. And it's sort of, you get this renewed energy because top mm. performers want to work with top performers. They want to be on high-performing teams. And the, the book that really made this clear to me, my, my own lived experience, was Reed Hastings wrote about this, the founder of Netflix, mm. in a book called No Rules Rules. And this theory of talent density, it's not only recruiting the best talent, retaining the best talent, but it's about, you know, pruning back when you need to, to allow yeah. your best talent to, to flourish. And the anecdote that they use in the book is, in the early days of Netflix, they were a, a DVD mailing service. I think that you and I might have mm -hmm. talked about this. Yeah. Um, and then they realized, you know, digital streaming video was coming down the pike and their whole business would be blown up if they didn't pivot and, and sort of innovate themselves or disrupt themselves. And so they took their 400 employee list and they trimmed it down to 100. And they said, mm. you know, we, we can't continue to carry this overhead. The super interesting thing is, isn't firing 300 of your team. It's that the 100 people that were left were more than three times as productive. Wow. As the 400 people in total. And it's exactly because of this. So the talent density of that organization had got diluted. Mm. And so your top performers spent a lot of time in structures that were meant to control the whole organization. Top yeah. performers, you know, top performers and lowest performers. So they're sort of, you know, being constrained by those systems and structures mm. that we put into place. But also spending time coaching and, and managing and fixing the mistakes of other people who weren't at that level. And so this kind of idea of talent density has to be sort of nurtured over time. And it, yeah. it's very natural, and I've been in several organizations where this happened, as you hire, that talent density gets diluted over time. And so being very, very focused on ensuring that you retain that talent yeah. density, that you recruit only the best talent, if you make a mistake, that you fix it quickly, and building the culture that allows that talent to thrive. Yeah. Because you've been on teams, you know, maybe now mm -hmm. at your current business, you know, sports teams, work teams, um, you know, school teams where you had just a bunch of all-stars that were working together and achieved outside yeah. things, right? You're like, there's no way that those three people could achieve that. That's incredible. And it's that kind of feeling, mm. you know, it's when Csikszentmihalyi writes about being in flow. It's like, you just go to work and everything's easy. The basket's this big as Michael Jordan describes it. You know, it's sort of, everything's working. And you want the function of having a very positive, yeah. very supportive culture alongside a very highly talent dense team is do you get a lot more of that that kind of moments of flow that performance and so that's why i say ceos should focus on culture also even early because it's super important got it and um to close off um what what is the number one impact you want to leave on the world as ceo of ori and then more generally um in your role developing companies in the space? That's a great question. I mean, I think I do meet a lot of entrepreneurs, as you said, 
and not only in health tech, you know, some, you know, they're doing all kinds of interesting things, fintech and just straight tech mm -hmm. businesses. And um, <laughs> I was talking to a guy yesterday, actually, who was in San Francisco. And he said, I just didn't want to be another engineer at Facebook that's trying to get some teenager to spend 10 more minutes on Instagram. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you have an opportunity to deploy your talents in any way you want. I've chosen to work in healthcare because we can have a big impact on mm. people that are sick or prevent people from getting sick. And so Ori in particular, we have cures for cancer that patients can't access because they're too expensive and they can't be manufactured at, at a high, you know, high enough volume. Mm. So that's the problem. That, I mean, it's a very clear mission for Ori is there are cancer cures that patients need and we need to get them to them. That, that's what we're doing. And that's an easy thing to get excited about. You can tell I'm excited about it probably because I'm waving my hands around. But, you know, you get out of bed in the morning, you're like, I'm going to run hard at this because there's a big mission there to, to try and tackle. And so all of the businesses that I work with, there's another business called Grippable, which is in neurorehabilitation. So stroke, traumatic mm. brain, brain injury, helping people regain function. Uh, there's another business called Credentially, which is about uh, credentialing healthcare professionals to make sure we can try and fill the the void, the healthcare vacuum that's in the UK, we're something mm. like 250,000 healthcare professionals short. Uh, and these are impactful businesses. These are businesses that will have a big impact on patients' lives. So that's easy to get excited about. And so my hope is that through those businesses and others that I'm involved in, that we help you know, cure disease and prevent disease and help people live you know, longer, happier lives. I think that's, a, that's worth getting out of bed for.